Welcome to XR Star, your monthly podcast where we talk all things extended reality. I'm your host, futurist Amelia Coleman. Today, we're talking about XR and the future of healthcare. Last week, a cutting-edge report was released titled The Growing Value of XR in Healthcare, and our guest today is one of the report's esteemed authors. Developed in partnership with NHSX, Health Education England Technology Enhanced Learning Team, UKRI Audience of the Future Challenge, NIHR Mental Health MedCare Cooperative, and Rescape, the report aims to help government and public health services make informed decisions about future strategies to ensure that they can fully exploit the potential of XR and ultimately improve patient outcomes and our quality of life in the future. According to an XR in industry analysis by PwC's Jeremy Dalton, who you might remember from episode two of this podcast, there are over 97 organizations across the UK alone using XR technologies for healthcare, and at least 119 XR healthcare projects already underway. One of the biggest drivers to integrate XR into healthcare, of course, is saving money. XR can be used to help patients face operations and treatments that they might otherwise avoid, which could lead to an estimated savings of £2 million per year. Developing therapies remotely via VR can be two to three times cheaper than traditional rehabilitation, cut waiting times, improve engagement, and reduce the likelihood of systems, symptoms exasperating. And finally, XR can reduce training costs and improve overall surgical performance by as much as 230%. Another growing concern is mental health. Essentially, everyone in the world has just experienced a trauma going through this pandemic and dealing with the fallout of COVID-19 and lockdown. The impact of the long-term mental health is yet to be seen. It's predicted that in the UK, up to 10 million people will need mental health support as a direct consequence of the crisis. That's 21.7% of England needing additional support from an already burdened system. This is where VR might be able to help. VR is already being used to assist treatments for mental illnesses such as phobias, anxiety, eating disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorder. By pairing XR with other new technologies such as biosensors and eye tracking, medical professionals can track the progress as well as glean valuable data leading to early diagnosis of things like Alzheimer's and dementia. By combining XR with AI, we can offer more generative, personalized scenarios as well. The report is focused on five core applications of XR in healthcare, including mental health and well-being, physiotherapy and rehabilitation, pain management, professional training, and patient education. Here to speak with us more about her research and insights is Sarah Tico. Sarah is a producer, consultant, and founder of Hatsumi, a company that develops work at the intersection of immersive technology, interactive art, and storytelling to improve physical and mental health. 
She's the producer at Explore Deep, an award-winning, clinically validated, breath-controlled VR experience designed to reduce anxiety, as, as well as being the co-founder of XR Health Alliance. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I really look forward to this interview and great work with the report. Um, we'll be sure to link to it. Everyone, I recommend you have a good look at it and check it out. Um, first, I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself and your background and how you got involved in XR. Yeah, sure. So I um, studied anthropology at university. I was really interested in just people and the world and also not trying to like specialize too early on. And it was actually just as I was graduating that I lost my dad and was really just not equipped to deal with that sort of level of grief at the time or I don't think anyone oh, ever is but um but I ended up sort of yeah it wasn't a great time but I think it also like made me really think deeply about what was important to me and it was around that time that I ended up uh volunteering in a contemporary arts organization and so I worked in the arts and, and film for some time down here in Brighton and then it was a few years later that I ended up having my own experience of quite severe mental health and sort of navigating the healthcare system and just not feeling like I was being heard or listened to or really getting the support that I needed. And I think being working in film and storytelling at the time, I became really interested in different ways that we could talk about our experience. And um, I think a year or so later, I moved to Australia and it was there I heard someone talking about virtual reality and was like this is so interesting like the idea that you can like not be this external viewer but you can actually give someone an embodied experience where you can show the perspective of somebody else so I just became really fascinated initially with it as a storytelling tool and how I really liked the idea of how it could be used as a metaphor for mental health as well that like you're seeing the world from this like through the eyes of somebody else um, and then I ended up becoming a curator at, a play, at um, an event called the Big Anxiety Festival, which was an arts and mental health festival, and was invited to curate an exhibition about all the ways that, that VR is used in mental health. And was just kind of amazed discovering all the different ways that it was used from like pain management to, yeah, how you can use it for training healthcare professionals or how you can use it to manage anxiety as well. That's where I first came across Deep, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit as well. Um, and so initially I, I had this idea to develop a PhD around using VR to uh, talk about experiences of mental health through visualizing it using 3D drawing. Um, I then moved to America where I spent a little bit of time as a researcher at Stanford and got really interested, even more interested in the, the use of VR in, in sort of healthcare applications. But it was around 2018 that I then moved back to the UK and was like, I'm not going to do this as a PhD. I actually want to create something that can be used and like out there in the world. And I think there's an opportunity for artists and scientists to work together to create these kind of interesting VR experiences that do involve, you know, a storytelling aspect as well. But I think through that process, I was speaking to other founders here in the UK that were doing all sorts of interesting things around VR and health. And I was like, how does it work? Like, who do you talk to? Where do you go for help? Like, how, what's it like working with the NHS? And I just found that it was very fragmented and that it was difficult to get funding. There weren't very many opportunities. 
Like lots of people don't didn't really understand what how VR could be used in health. And so it was around um, that time that I started speaking to Immerse UK, that are a big organization here that have been doing lots of work to fund and support people in immersive. And I just said, hey, this is really exciting. Like all these people are doing this stuff in health, but I think there's some very unique challenges uh, around how we work with patients and clinicians and researchers. Like let's explore this. So over the last, I guess, three years now, I've been I've been working with them on uh, some of their healthcare work and running events and roundtables. And it was actually through that that I met Fiona, who's one of the co-authors of this report. And ultimately, like all that work came together for us and um, somebody called Ross O'Brien as well from the NHS. So again, we met through this work that um, that we co-developed the report together. Amazing. I mean, it's so important, this work that you're doing, and I really applaud you for it. And thank you for sharing your personal story with us. You have quite a resume, too. Um, really impressive. Um, maybe <laughs> I'm interested to know a bit more about your company, Hatsumu, and what you guys do there. And also this, um, this breath-controlled VR experience. I've never heard anything like it, so I want to know more. Yeah, so Hatsumi, it's a, it's a play on a Japanese word. Um, the original word is Hatsumimi, which means to hear something for the first time. And so Hatsumi means to see or to see something for the first time. And so this was my original concept okay. of a PhD that I've sort of done independently now over the last few years. And it's, um, it's an adaptation of an existing arts and health research method called body mapping where traditionally what you do is you trace around your body on a large piece of paper, you go through a mindfulness experience and you start to think, what does my anxiety look like? Or what does my pain look like? Where do I feel it in my body? And what sort of colours or words or, or textures would you use to um, communicate that? And sort of using it as a way of non-verbally talking about experience. And so we've been applying it specifically to chronic pain and I think on average, you have like 11 seconds to convey your condition to a doctor before you'll probably be interrupted. But also we really rely on these like very standardized ways of, of measuring pain, which is like how much on a scale of one to 10 does it hurt? So this is a, a way of sort of changing the conversation and also uh, getting people to talk about both the emotional and the physical uh, elements of it. And then also you're kind of creating artwork as well. So it's a kind of different way of practicing mindfulness. It's like this very embodied, creative way of, of examining your own experience. And then creating work, artwork where you can actually share that with other people that aren't just doctors, but friends and family members. And what we're also doing is uh, developing a sort of um, arts-based version of it where we can bring it to festivals. And then the illustrations all sort of come together into this like terracotta army of experience and starting a, a different conversation with people about how we experience pain and emotion. Um, and then with Deep is a separate project that I've been involved in. So Deep I first came across at the Big Anxiety Festival uh, and it was the first VR project I ever showed just when I was you know, a little bit interested in, in, in VR and wasn't quite sure about what the potential of it was. But, um, but it's a project that was developed by two artists, Owen Harris and Nikki Smith, who wanted to create an experience to sort of manage their own anxiety. And so it's this beautiful experience where it's a, um, you wear a, a breath belt that you, you strap around your diaphragm and through slow, deep breathing, you put on your headset and then you move through this underwater universe that's controlled by your breath. 
and it's very much controlled by diaphragmic breathing as well and so you kind of move through this world and you see uh, your breath visualized in front of you but also in the seaweed and the fish that are moving in tandem and this has been collaborate developed in collaboration with uh, Isabella Granick and uh, Joannica Verdmeester from the Games for Emotional and Mental Health Lab as well. So over the last four years, we've been doing uh, clinical trials on how effective it is as a tool for regulating emotion uh, through deep breathing. And also what is that sort of long lasting effect on remembering how to sort of calm yourself down through that breathing as well. So again, it's a sort of arts-based experience that's been taken to film festivals and museums. We have a permanent installation at the Science Museum in the Netherlands as well, but also we've been working with, with researchers as well to really test the efficacy of it as well. I love it. I would love to try it sometime too. Let me know if I can sometime. Um, wow, it sounds really amazing. And I love that idea too with Hatsumi about kind of transforming chronic pain and something that we can't see into something that is visible and emotive and is shareable and also beautiful. Um, I think that's a really good concept and I, I'd love to experience that myself sometime. And you know, I think a lot of people would be really interested in these things, especially at the moment. This last year and a half has really taken a toll on people. And now that we're coming back into the world, we're you know, trying to navigate how we communicate again and how we, you know, share and connect and deal with anxiety and social pressure and all those kind of things. Um, and, and, you know, this mental health issue is just becoming bigger and more visible, which I think is a great thing. But, um, but you know, you don't have to look far to see it amongst your friends and family. And um, I'm just wondering a bit, from the report perspective, um, what is being done right now with XR to support mental health and where do you see this going in the future? I think like we're only just getting started on the different ways that it is being used in mental health. There are so many applications of it and I think that it's really relevant that we're exploring it now, especially when so many people are homebound. And I think we really need to rethink how we deliver therapies so that we can reach the most at-risk people, the people that, you know, have severe agoraphobia, aren't able to go out, are shielding. Um, but some of the first early work was really around um, the use of, of virtual reality for things like phobias and PTSD. Um, uh, a very renowned researcher in the field is uh, someone called Skip Rizzo, such a great name. He's based over in California that's done a lot of work in um, PTSD and sort of exposure therapy for war veterans. But I think also being able to just do, bring bring those environments to people in a in a safe place. If you're afraid of flying, the idea of taking someone onto an aeroplane is very expensive and uh, very time consuming. And therapists can't do that every day. But you can do it in the safety of someone's home or a doctor's office um, as well. Um, there's also been some really great work around... Um, things like psychosis as well. So again, the big project here in the UK is Game Change, uh, which was again for people with psychosis and mild agoraphobia where they could actually practice going to environments that they found quite challenge, challenging and would have these virtual coaches um, that could support them with that as well. And then things like DEEP. I mean, there's loads of really amazing um, people out there doing work around anxiety management, how you can teach emotional regulation skills um, through things like deep breathing, but even just giving somewhere like people somewhere 
nice and relaxing to escape to especially when you're stuck in a hospital and just bored out of your mind being able to go to a beach or you know use google maps vr and revisit the place that you went dancing when you were a child like i think there's something important about just leveraging joy and just giving that yeah. sort of playful fun element to it uh, and then there's all sorts of stuff around things like art therapy, obviously, and stuff like Hatsumi that's a very, like, applied form of art therapy in some senses. But I think just things like uh, using Google Tilt Brush, which is like a 3D drawing experience that's uh, obviously quite well known, and using that as an extended form of art therapy, or using VR for exercise. Again, like, just existing exercise things out there are just really great for getting people moving and, and, and you know, uplifting their mood a bit so I think yeah it's just continuing to expand at the moment and with the opportunities of things like um multiplayer VR being able to do group therapy sessions um I heard of some really great work that was happening at Vanderbilt University in Nashville where they were doing these sort of um support groups for um uh, for a chat transgender group and that it was really valuable to them because they got to connect with loads of other transgender people from around the world, but also within that could embody the bodies that they really wanted to inhabit as well. And that kind of, you know, enhanced that experience for them and also gave them a sort of sense of safety too. Um, but I think there's just like more and more fantastic work constantly coming out at the moment. Yeah, and I'm so glad you touched on that about connecting with other people through these new realities. You know, when we are stuck at home um, or in a place where maybe there's not a lot of people who are sharing the same symptoms or the same experience that we are, it's it's really driven home over this last year how important it is to connect with other people. And, um, and I love that VR is being used as a tool to do that. Um, some of the things you mentioned remind me of there's stories about people learning, going through rehabilitation and trying to learn how to walk again and do these kind of things. And with virtual reality, they're able to walk that much further and push themselves that much further because um, almost in a way it distracts the brain and the body goes into, um, you know, the brain rewires and, and recalls, you know, going for a hike in the woods or something. And people are able to kind of push the, the limits of what they might be able to do inside a, a formal rehabilitation studio. I think that's really yeah, neat. Exactly. And actually speaking and it's of playful which, yeah. and enjoyable. Oh yeah. And I was exactly. just going to say that, yeah, you're, you're making it enjoyable and fun. And, you know, I think it's more than just like gamification. It's like, you know, involving story and, and yeah, making it much more enjoyable than just having to do your standard rehabilitation like every day that no one gets particularly excited about. Yeah, the storytelling aspect is one that I think um, really has potential to be exploited here um, to really get people to dive into something and then want to come back the next week to see what happens next and, you know, and get really excited. And you think about um, things like Easter eggs being hidden inside these virtual reality experiences. And I love that, you know, I mean, VR does, you know, there's no denying that it it has come in the last couple of years from this gaming and entertainment kind of uh, background and to be able to apply that now to, to healthcare is really exciting. And, um, and I would think that it would be particularly relevant around things like training as well, not just professionals, but also around kind of patient education training and wonder what you've seen in those areas. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot there. And I think that it's a really interesting and exciting place that it can grow as well, because I think it's important for patients to feel empowered in understanding what is going on for them. And it can be really inaccessible and confusing sometimes. So I think being able to present things in really compelling ways is is really important. There's been some really good work, especially in like using VR for um, uh, sort of supporting people with autism with like communication skills um, I think one one interesting example that I came across was um, up at Alderhay Hospital in, in here in Liverpool then uh, they found that they had um, like some of the largest incidents of dog bites in children and often that was um, specifically children with autism that weren't able to read those non-verbal keys by the dogs that they weren't enjoying what was happening and so they created right. this VR training experience where it was teaching them to recognize those sort of um, yeah non, non obviously non-verbal behaviors from dogs uh, to, to sort of get a grasp of that. But um, but I think there's also like some real value in in being able to see things from other people's perspectives as well, and I think that's where storytelling and the arts have had really you know powerful examples of that. Um, I remember a sort of yeah not medical example, but something one of the first things that really moved me years ago was this um. 360 uh, storytelling experience called Perspectives and it was like a mini series and it was like multi-perspective storytelling where you were seeing one event unfold for multiple people and there was one that was oh, interesting um, yeah uh, yeah the first one was um, about a rape that happened at a school party like a college party in the US and you kind of see it from the girl's perspective and you know her becoming like increasingly drunk throughout the evening and these people like talking to her and her not knowing what was going on and then you see it from the guy's perspective and he was like this young nervous guy that was having all his friends were like normalizing these behaviors that clearly and are not okay but just seeing how you can how somebody that would never didn't seem to have those intentions could lead to doing something afterwards I think it really sort of changed how I understood how these events can unfold um, and yeah. again like being able to do that for for doctors as well to understand what is it actually like to be a patient and being passed person to person uh, and and not really having like that care not having someone like look you in the eyes and explain what's going on because they're so busy that actually being able to see something through through their eyes can be really valuable in, in, in training clinicians as well as helping patients understand what's going on for them as well. Absolutely. I used to work for an agency um, that produced a virtual reality experience that was for training uh, foster care workers and social care workers and allowing them to kind of see the experiences that children might have had before they came into care. And 99% uh, of people who took it said that it changed the way that they dealt then with the kids coming into their care. And uh, it's really powerful, the what VR can do and just seeing other people's perspectives. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. One thing, and being um, able to visualize things that you perhaps couldn't usually see as well. So things like, I think there's a group called Embodied Labs in the US where they'll do things like visualize things like macular degeneration and, you know, how, how these things can actually change the way that people communicate because the way that their eyesight is affected and stuff as well. So I think that's, that's that sort of additional sort of sensory layer and how you can integrate things like haptics and biofeedback to sort of enhance those experiences as well. 
Yeah, and I love um, that integration of new technologies. I was going to say, um, with what we can do with artificial intelligence and machine learning now, being able to create these kind of generative experiences so that when healthcare professionals are training, they never have the same experience twice because every person's different and you know you don't have the same experience over and over and over again. And it doesn't kind of matter if you're good at one scenario when there's millions of scenarios out there, as many as there are people in the world. Um, which actually brings me to my next question is, um, you know, I know in the XR community, you and I are both very passionate about this representation and inclusion and diversity. And I would think in healthcare that becomes particularly important that, um, you know, because people are all different. So um, kind of where are we at with that? And, and, and what is going on right now when you think about XR and healthcare and inclusion and representation? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that the success of all this technology really relies on this like very interdisciplinary approach of bringing so many different people to the, to the table. First of all, yeah, like having a diversity of people with a range of different experiences because we need if if we're doing something to meet the health needs of the population, we need to make sure that we are also representative of the population as well. And we need to have like more women involved and people of color and patients as well. I think there's like a big thing that often like people will come up with ideas and be like, I know best. But I think, you know, being able to speak to people and get them involved in that process, because even that the whole design process needs to be very collaborative. You need games designers and artists and narrative designers and then, you know, patients that can co-develop that experience with you and the researchers that can co-create and evaluate that experience and healthcare professionals that understand what it means to to implement it so I think there's a really interesting opportunity to like rethink how we develop these kinds of things that involve the creative industries as well but I think at the moment there is a, a real lack of, of diversity in this space and I'm really hoping that it changes and just showing that this is an opportunity like a viable you know career opportunity that you can make beautiful experiences that can help people um and that it's not you know this boys club that i think people thought it was for a very long time because i think there is just a misconception with vr that it is just shooting zombies and driving cars when actually like there's so much more to that and i think that's the thing that i'm really excited about sharing is that you can do all these these other exciting things too Exactly. And I think it's so important because XR has such potential in this area to make a huge impact, to save save money, to help save lives, you know. But I think it's really important to also remember that a lot of the people who are coming in for care might not have experienced VR before, you know. So there is that like learning curve as well. And we definitely need artists and creative people and people who um, are empathetic and, you know, um, to be able to help bring people into buying into these new technologies and stuff as opposed to kind of just throwing it on people and expecting them to get on with it you know um there's there's a lot of respect that we need to show towards the community of of patients and people and uh and that does take a whole community and you know and because people come to doctors offices with different problems you know the idea about allowing a doctor to be able to see what it's like from their patient's perspective um, really is is could is powerful and could change things you know change the way our whole system works 
And I think that's um, that's cool. I think we're that's really cool that we're thinking about that now and very necessary. Um, so at the end of the report, you make several recommendations moving forward, including how we can improve connecting innovators with healthcare community. Um, how should this work ideally? How should the kind of chain work between people developing the technology and the healthcare community who's going to implement the technology and eventually reach the patients? And what are some of the kind of challenges for achieving this goal? Um, so I think that one of the first things we really need to do is like like map out who is out there. So I think, yeah, one of our first big recommendations was just around like doing some landscaping analysis because there are so many people that are interested from very different perspectives. But I think what we've learned through this research so far and the work we've been doing the last few years is that it is very fragmented and how many, you know, startups are talking or working with the universities and how many artists are out there that are just making cool games that they feel like are, you know, fun, relaxing experiences that could actually benefit from um, uh, collaborating with with other people. And I think this was some, something I found from another research pro project a few years ago, especially around the role of the arts and creative practice in VR around mental health was that people, lots of games developers were making things that were almost accidentally therapeutic. Um, I think a really good example of that was um, a, a game called Where Thoughts Go by a games designer called Lucas Risotto, who has an amazing YouTube channel as well called Lucas Builds a Feature that I really recommend for people that are interested in, in all things XR. But it's a sort of um, storytelling experience where you go through the game and you're asked different questions, which starts from, you know, what did you always want to be when you grew up to by the end where it's like, if you had a year left to live, what would you do? And just how it was like this beautiful tool for getting people to open up. Um, and the kind of feedback that he got from people afterwards of how much they emotionally benefited from it to other psychologists saying like, have you thought about making this something that was clinically available? And so I think I remember speaking to him and he was saying, well, I'm an artist. I don't know how to do that. I just want to like make interesting things, but also there isn't that, uh, opportunity to connect those people and give them the right, um, place to develop things and, and scale it up. If that was something that he wanted to do. But I think like our intention is going forward is to create a bit more of like a framework and like a pipeline that starts from how do you get scientists and, and artists, you know, communicating and sharing sort of skills and knowledge to how do you fund that work and get people yet yeah, in the same place, able to uh, obtain the money to like make pilots and, and sort of MVPs. Um, I think there needs to be like a clearer process of how you then are able to scale that up because at the moment it's very fragmented in how you can publish these experiences. Like, you know, at the moment then it's not really possible to publish your medical VR experience on most, you know, common headset stores. Um, and thinking about like what a distribution model looks like for that and creating almost these virtual pharmacies where you can have an experience that has been, you know, developed in collaboration with all the people that need to be involved in that process to actually, you know, what are the guidelines to make sure this is safe and having a sort of clinical quality assurance thing around that? How do we protect patient safety and data? Because there is so much information that you can gather, which can be really helpful, but also, you know, if misused, like incredibly dangerous and problematic. Um, and so one of our partners, for example, on the report was the XR Safety Initiative that are doing some really good work around developing standards. 
And so again, we want to create like a clearer framework with how we can make sure that these these things are being safely created and 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 um, and sort of released as well. And so that ultimately there could be a point in the future where you go to your doctor and say, "This is going on for me," and then they can either prescribe you a headset to to take up. To take at home or say you know your local library that this is available and you can do these exercises three times a week and we're already seeing that starting to happen so one of the examples we have in the report is um pulmonary rehab in virtual reality and this was the only pulmonary rehab therapy that continued happening throughout the pandemic because they were able to send these headsets to people at home and they could do their exercises every single day when before that hand, they would have to wait three months for that referral and then they would go twice a week, which obviously isn't as as regular as, as being able to do it, you know, every day at home as well. So I think there's some really good opportunities for this, but I think it, we really have found that through this report that we need to get tech companies, uh, universities, hospitals, everyone working together and being able to create this sort of common language and a framework that, that we can all work together. So we're excited to keep on developing that in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, like a common resource would be great. And also, I th- when you were talking just then, I was thinking about reaching the next generations, the people who are going to come up and and they're going to want to be, you know, an XR healthcare professional, you know, and aspire to that and understand that that is a job. And actually, that combines things that are creative. It combines helping people. It combines medicine. You know, um, there's so many opportunities for new jobs that we haven't even heard of yet or imagined um, to come out of this. And I think you're right. I think a lot of that has to do with kind of linking things up. I love the idea about a virtual pharmacy, Um, you know, and that's something that you could almost do without having to go to the doctor. If you're feeling a certain way, you could go into this virtual world and select what you want to do that day and try it out and see if you can maybe help yourself. Um, I love that. That's really cool. When you were doing this report, um, did anything jump out and surprise you that you hadn't expected to find out? Was there any particular case study or something that you found fascinating that you weren't expecting to? Oh, gosh, so many things. I think it was a really big learning experience, just like wrapping our head around the health economics and actually seeing like, what is the impact of this? Firstly, in like how much money can it really save to, you know, what, how this is different to, you know, therapy as usual. And I think it, if anything, it made me even more convinced as well um, of those sort of opportunities, especially in things like primary care, how it's, it's so useful for people that have like severe anxiety before surgeries and how much money is lost every year through even people coming in for like minor day surgery because that's still really really scary and that the amount of times that people have to reschedule appointments because of that and that through just being able to buy a headset if you can save one person from having to to reschedule an appointment like that is already a cost saving and the fact that you can create these kind of lovely magical experiences for people I just think is really exciting um, I think one of the things that one of the, the case studies that I really enjoyed learning about, I mean, there's so many that I think the diversity of case studies in there is something that I really enjoyed um, learning about and, and getting us all to put together. But I think the opportunities for VR, VR in, in diagnostics is, is really interesting as well. So there's one case study of how they were able to, um, there's a project done between University of Cambridge and UCL where uh, 
looking at how you could potentially uh, predict uh, the early signs of Alzheimer's and dementia in people. And that one of the very early symptoms that's quite difficult to measure is your sort of internal sat-nav, essentially, that starts to, to not work as well and that people can get disorientated. But you can't really measure that day-to-day. -day. So they created this VR experience that could actually detect when people were getting lost in these experiences quite quickly. Um, and I think that sort of opportunity of, you know, being able to gather this sort of spatialized data, how people are interacting in experiences, that sort of movement data, um, and also, you know, the potential for integrating biofeedback more. There's some really interesting companies that are doing lots to integrate biofeedback. Um, and a company, in fact, down here in Brighton called MTech, that have created the sort of biofeedback integrated headset. So it measures things like galvanic skin response, heart rate variability, but also can detect uh, different forms of emotions through your sort of muscle movements in your in your face as well. And um, and I think the potential of that in, in predicting certain conditions and, you know, adapting experiences as well that are personalized to how those patients are responding i think there's so much potential for that but also with that opens this very big conversation about again how do we regulate this how do we make it safe how do we integrate this with like patient records like there's a lot of of, of complexities to consider but i think some some really exciting opportunities as well that again i think we only find when we get all these different people in a room talking about like what kind of things we can create and how to make that a safe opportunity as well yeah well, that kind of leads nicely into my final question, which I always like to ask people, which is what is your biggest hope for XR in the future? And what's your biggest concern about XR in the future? I think my biggest hope is that it is something that is accessible to everyone and that we can do that, not necessarily through everyone just having a headset at home. But I think working with local libraries and schools, that it is just something that you can pick up and play with every once in a while and that there is just like this amazing range of experiences available that are educational and playful and fun um, that can actually you know improve your health and well-being and yeah just being able to get a scientist and an artist in a room to to co-create those things I just find infinitely exciting um, but I do worry about you know who is dominating this space and how yeah how to make it you know this 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 exciting opportunity that isn't necessarily just just dominated by a certain few and that it's constantly you know funded through the misuse of people's data and that there are you know it is a more open platform where people can safely collaborate and i think especially the more that young people are starting to use it how we protect them as well because i think mm -hmm. speaking to lots of different play therapists i think there's such an opportunity for vr and games uh in in supporting young people's mental health but also there's a lot of of, of danger with that as well so i think how we safeguard that is something that is, should always be considered absolutely thank you for that yeah when i think about it i wonder if this is gonna we're gonna look back at like 
the gold this is like the golden age of vr before big business got involved before advertisers got involved you know and all those kind of things and there's a part of me that really wants to protect this space you know that and mm -hmm. use it for the good and make sure that everybody feels comfortable and safe and that it's it's protected um as opposed to turn into the dark web, you know, in 3D. So, um, yeah, this was really great. Um, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Um, it's fascinating, the work that you've done and the research that you've done. And as I mentioned before, we're going to link to the report. Um, but where can our audience find you if they have more questions? Um, in all the regular places, I'm on LinkedIn at Sarah Tico, on uh, Twitter uh, at Sarah Tico, um, and yeah, you can contact us through the xrhealthuk.org website as well. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sarah Tico. You were a fabulous guest. And thank you so much for joining us this month. I look forward to speaking to you again on our next podcast episode. Take care. Oh, my God.